head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, live from the Fruit Loop, it's Andy Greenwald. Happy Friday or Thursday night. Yeah, what's I don't up, remember. man? Uh, Thursday show, Thursday night show, Friday morning show, whenever you're listening to it, it's always there. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Top Chef. Andy has got a great interview with Aya Cash and William Jackson Harper that uh, is coming up after that. But first, we're going to start off with a couple of news and notes and some headlines. Andy, how are you doing? Great. That's the headline. I'm Here's my concern. I know people love the 10-minute shoot around or whatever that we do here. <laughs> people love it. <laughs> the catch up. Um, the catch up. And my only concern is, Chris, are we getting too cozy? Not with, because with each other? Not because you're wearing what looks like athleisure today. You look great. It's, a, it's an L.L. Bean rugby shirt that is made out of like yeah. kind of like a, a Lycra kind of a wicking fabric, you know? Yeah, you, your body moisture levels look <laughs> exceptional right now. It's like it's 51 not, degrees here. It's not just that. It's that you, me, and Kaya basically just did an 11-minute podcast without hitting record. Producer Kaya was great. She won't let the, that those nuggets out, but she was awesome just now. So my worry is like, Chris, when does the podcast even start anymore? When does it stop? It's all one podcast, brother. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) And I worry that it is for you because I think I know what you do all day in your capacity as, you know, the Swiss army knife of the ringer.com. And then someone blesses my TL with you doing a (laughs) nine minute metal football draft with Danny Kelly. The third year in a row. We've done it three years now. Have you always been the voice of Beelzebub the devil? In those videos? Yeah, this is my third year playing Satan in Danny Kelly's draft videos. I thought you were the Val Kilmer of the part in that you showed up for the threequel. You know what I mean? That other people (laughs) had played the role previously. No, that's a blast. Corey and Danny do an amazing job with that. I just come in and scream. (laughs) I mean, 
some would some might say that's your raison d'etre, as we might say on Le Bureau. Chris, um, did other people at the ringer audition for that part? Uh, I don't. I don't know. I'd have to ask Corey McConnell if he's got any other like uh, if anybody did read for it. I'm not sure. I think that you know there are a lot of out of work actors in Hollywood right now. So who can say? Also, <laughs> did a lot Aaron of actors, Reich might have come in for it. I'm serious. And a lot of yeah. actors who may have read for the part of Mephisto in the in the first <laughs> season of Wandavision that was unfortunately cut for time. That's right. Um, Chris, before what, we get into... What about into, like the guy who was like in charge of the virus in Falcon and Winter Soldier? <laughs> that, that guy. <laughs> you mean Dr. Keebler or whatever his name was? Or, or, or do you mean like Will the person who was in charge yeah. of that, that plot line? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, no, I, 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 I do think that we should... I know we talked about that on Monday. We'll talk about it again on Monday for the finale. But I don't know. And maybe we'll even get a chance to talk to Falcon and Winter Soldier showrunner Malcolm Spellman about this. But I do know that some programs... I mean, everyone runs their writers' rooms differently. But... Mm-hmm. In many cases, there is, even if it's informally, a person who kind of is in charge of one of the plot lines or takes ownership over sure. one of the plot lines or characters. Did you have something that like person. that for your show where somebody was yeah, kind of like, yeah. I am I am the shepherd of this thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Like Haley Harris, for example, uh, came in being like, I really love procedurals and detective stories. So when we got to the episodes that really we had to do that kind of um, where stuff have to like make sense. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't the guy for that, and I was on Front Street with it. So, you know, so we had someone who really loved that part of the story. Similarly, do you think that in 2019, Malcolm Spellman is just like, I've got a virologist. I've got an epidemiologist slash executive story editor who's just going to own this piece of the Falcon and Winter Soldier puzzle. And then what a whiplash of a year for that and did Gentleman that guy go and buy a four bedroom in Sherman Oaks for two milli and was just That's like, life is sweet. He's <laughs> got that Tesla truck lease. That's right. It's not even out yet, but you're already paying 900 a month. Um, Woof. Chris, Andy, I wanted I, to, wait, before um, we get into this, I just want to do house cleaning because I think some people, hopefully people around the world, not just in France, are interested in our Le Bureau podcasting. Yeah. And we should let people know that we have recorded it's in the, the first can. edition yeah so, so seasons one and two will drop next wednesday as a bonus episode we're not going to tack it on to your usual watch on monday thursday night friday morning um we just figured you know hopefully people have been checking the show out we've we are in love with it we're going to do uh at least three episodes i think probably three episodes of a podcast on it so we'll do one and two we'll do three and four and then we'll do the final season and hopefully have like either an interview or a guest come on to chat about why they love it. We've already got some feelers out. So we're Consider really excited. This a, a dead drop. Yeah. Just so in the middle of the night in your in your feed, we you know, I, I I we say in this podcast that Chris and I are trying to be mindful of like not getting too far ahead in our own watch of the series before we record about it. So it stays a little bit fresh, but we were also both totally obsessed. And the You're danger slingshot now, ahead of me now. Well, the danger is we took a week off in my household after finishing season three, purely for the sake of the podcast we recorded yesterday. I haven't made my wife as happy as I did last night when I said, let's fire up season four since, and I'm just spitballing here, since 2011. <laughs> like, I, I, th- there, there was a, a, a pure smile. And, and, and so th- merci to everyone yeah. in the, from allowing me to do this and bring the show into our lives. So- Stay tuned for that. Catch up if you haven't. Please watch yeah. the show. So next Wednesday, we'll drop that. We'll stick to our regular, regularly scheduled programming. Otherwise, Mayor of Easttown and Falcon and Winter Soldier on Monday. We've got some guests lined up, so we're pretty excited. Uh, Andy, before we got into Top Chef this week, I wanted to just throw a couple of things at you. One was this, mm-hmm. I find to be somewhat 
thinly sourced, or at least anonymously sourced, mm. story about Mindhunter coming back, which obviously for fans of this pod, for for people who have been following what we've been talking about for the last couple of years, Mindhunter is one of our favorite shows probably of the last five years. I thought the second season was a miracle. I thought it was amazing. I know that it was made under uh, a lot of, like, not stress, but like it seemed like it took a while to come out and you know it was very adventurous uh, production. But the, there was a, a lot of finality to it, I thought, you know, in terms of the statements being made after that second season dropped. Like the second season definitely left it open for, for multiple seasons to come. Mm-hmm. Um, but afterwards, it was David Fincher was pretty candid. He was just like, it just takes like 90 hour work weeks to make this thing. It's, it's very hard. And I have other stuff I want to do. And for the amount of viewers it seems to get, it's a huge mm-hmm. investment from Netflix. No hard feelings. I don't think we're going to do a third one. And uh, I think that bummed out the dozens of people who watch Mindhunter religiously like us. But it seems like there is at least some anonymous daylight. There were a couple of stories in, I wouldn't necessarily say trades yet, but like, you know, in the far-flung reaches of, of TV, I think there was one that was like, tvscreen.co.uk was just like, a source says that Fincher and Netflix are talking about season three. Have you heard anything about this? And what do you think about the return? Uh, I haven't heard anything about it. I think it kind of makes sense because while there was an air of finality to it, the finality I don't think was necessarily on Netflix's part. It seemed to be more coming from David Fincher, who, as he's advanced further into his career, does seem to have a healthy sense of his own, I wouldn't say limitations, but his own um, Taste, working maybe. Yeah. method. Yeah, yeah. And no one is saying the show has to be so challenging and exacting and demanding, except him. And he doesn't half-ass anything, right? Even when he didn't show run this show, Courtney Miles did, or he, even if the second season of it, even if he didn't direct every episode, uh, which which he didn't of uh, the second season. Um, yeah, Carl Franklin and Andrew Dominic worked on the second yes. season. He still seems to expect everyone to behave, you know, or at least to, he holds everyone to his same standards, which mm-hmm. creates the great show that it is. So it's. I think it's really more about how much mental space he has and what's coming next on his plate. I think it's pretty clear that Netflix wants to still be in the David Fincher business. Um, I don't think anyone is expecting Mank, maybe other than Sean Fennessy, is expecting Mank to clean up on Sunday. I don't think Oscars, it's going to win but, any... I, don't, I mean, I would like to see it win a Oscar, an Oscar, but I don't think... Yeah. I think that the, the ship has sailed on Best Picture. I think most likely, but I still think Netflix wants to be in that conversation every time, and there aren't that many safe bets in terms of filmmakers who generally get their movies nominated for multiple awards. At, you know, come come the late winter or whenever they're going to be, whenever the Oscars are going to be going forward. One thing, speaking of Netflix, that I did want to say. Oh, and let me just finish by saying I think there'll be a third season. I have no idea when. I have no inside information. I just feel like there will be. It's a prestige show. Um, it's outstanding, and if Fincher wants to do it, I think they'll do it. Can I throw in my my prediction? Yeah. I hope and would love for there to be a third season. It wouldn't shock me if a third season involved some different cast members. It, you know, like some some replacement of the main characters that we had come to kind of know from the show. Um, and I wonder whether this could be a, hey, we came back and did five. We came back and did three. We came back and did six. Yes. Like rather than doing the ten episode, ten hour, honestly, what has now become another kind of marathon, a marathon into itself. Like it used to be the twenty two episode order was this inhuman march, and now I think almost for viewers and producers alike, it seems like the ten hour, the ten episode run is pretty difficult. I would love to see something like Mindhunter come back and say like we're going to play around with like a three episode miniseries. 
Right. I mean, I, if you look at season two of Mindhunter, it was nine episodes. I don't think it had a nine episode order. It most likely had a 10 episode order. And then either due to production constraints or changes of plan or probably budget, it ended up being nine episodes. So I think mm-hmm. that they were already heading in that direction. The thing that I wanted to fold into this conversation about Netflix was, and, and this isn't really, we generally don't cover uh, Wall Street because we're, frankly, we're too good at it. You know, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and 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 I got my worried. trader's license suspended just for being too too good at the stock market. Yeah, I mean, it, we don't want to put our thumbs on the scale too much because we're just pretty much in it, you know, to, to make money for our kids, and then we're out. You know, yeah. one last one last short, and we're out. I don't I don't know how stocks work, but Netflix missed its mark. Uh, you know, you generally they set their expectations for their investors, and they have a shareholders call, and they predicted, and in the last few quarters. They were wildly over, like Mm -hmm. insanely, almost obscenely over. And a lot of that was probably due to people signing up to watch more and more stuff during the pandemic, but also reflective of their just incredible growth and growth strategy around the world. They missed it uh, Mm -hmm. by two million. Two million? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was four million additional subscribers and they were shooting for six in this quarter. So they ended up with uh, 208 million global subscribers, which is still an enormous, enormous number. But- What's funny is just how much the narrative shifts on these things. And suddenly the narrative stops being Netflix is this, you know, this juggernaut that everyone is chasing to does Netflix have a uh, hotness issue? Not in terms of handsome stars of their shows like Jonathan Groff from Mindhunter, but more like they don't have the new Marvel shows or the new Star Wars shows, right? And they're not going to have the Lord of the Rings show. However, you know, that's certainly going to be well covered if if not well received. So is there an issue there? And, you know, firing up the adventures of of Jonathan Groff and Holt McElhaney. How do you say his name? McElhaney. McElhaney. That's not tit for tat, exactly. But I do wonder if in any way that that sense of, I wonder if it changes the calculus anyway for Netflix, where if they're now starting to think that instead of constantly needing flashy new material to hit new subscriber numbers, they're going to have to shore up a little bit on their back end and have more of the things that people signed up for in the first place. Now, so go point, back to the, hundred... the legacy subscribers who were there for like House of Cards and Orange is the New Black is what you mean. Yeah, and, and maybe there's a version of the conversation we've been having about people's uh, tastes turning more towards long-running series you know, the deep catalog dives. And and that's something that Netflix had for a while in addition to the new things, but they are losing. They've lost The Office. They're losing Friends. I think they're losing Seinfeld soon. Um, obviously, there are many more shows that people love to binge watch than those three beloved NBC comedies, but I'm just using them as examples of the type of show that Netflix is losing in addition to losing the Marvel movies that it had mm-hmm. for a brief period. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's kind of, I, I do feel like the next year for Netflix is going to be a little bit in flux. It's so difficult for me to kind of figure out what's what's true here because for a coastal elite podcast that made their bones on prestige TV, obviously we're going to be and stock biased and stock biased tips. towards. Hey, you have a awards worthy, buzz worthy show that everybody quote unquote and what everybody means is like me and my friends are talking about. So whether that's House of Cards, Ozark, Orange is the New Black, Stranger Things, whatever, like. And and I th- I would guess that the closest thing that they've had to that this year is probably Bridgerton, um, yes. which was a, definitely a sensation. And I think also must have brought in, I would imagine, a, a fair amount of subscribers. So it's not like they are 
not making things that people want to watch. Additionally, I think that their forays into reality television have probably been a huge driver of growth. Like things like The Circle and all that other stuff, Great British Bake Off. Like, yeah. So there's that. On the other hand, I've watched The Serpent. I've watched Behind Her Eyes. Like there are shows that I like on on Netflix that and and shows that I admire that are on new newer shows that are on Netflix. It has been a minute since it felt like Netflix had a show that everybody was talking about and that everybody yeah. was like, "This is the best thing I've seen in a long time." I don't know whether or not that matters to them. You know what I mean? And I also think that that's like a, an interesting kind of conversation about. They- what that means. What is what... Uh, you guys have a show that matters? Well, fuck yeah, we have a show that matters. Tons of people watch Ginny and Georgia. You guys might not think it's as good as Breaking Bad, but it's a sensation, you know? And P.S. we have Breaking Bad too. Yeah, um, right. I think that this is the kind of conversation that we are generally uniquely positioned to have because, and we should always put this caveat on, we don't really understand what's making money for a lot of these entities. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously subscriber growth, stock, shareholder value. That's what's driving profits for Netflix. But comparing the streaming services and their backing companies to each other is apples to oranges to walnuts. You know, it's, it's, they're very, very different in how they are constructed. That said, Netflix did have the pool alone for a while, and it was able to succeed in all the different categories that we would perceive as drivers of potential profit, whether it is critical acclaim, whether it is, you know, groundswell of fan support, or whether it is just sort of like deep catalog binging that might not get headlines, but it's just deeply profitable over the long run. That whole, all those segments are being cannibalized by the other services. HBO Max has two things that, I think this is a smart strategy, one that I don't even know if we correctly identified when it started to become apparent. They're buzzier. And they're buzzier because people, us, love to talk about Sunday night HBO shows. That's still a driver of the culture, at least for coastal elites like us. HBO Max has those. And it was very interesting that when the very seemingly very good ratings for The Nevers, a show I've checked out and did not mention on the podcast after checking it out, and uh, Mayor of Easttown, apparently very good ratings for both. Mm-hmm. Both kind of blurred the lines. And they were like, HBO Max notches best ratings for HBO originals on HBO Max. So they have that, Corner. And they also have the movies, which is also the new movies that are going, Warner Brothers movies that are going straight to HBO Max. And that's also very kind of buzzy and drives that. Peacock, you know, probably still too soon to understand what its originals are doing or what, how it's doing in general. But you can see that, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to think that most likely the most watched things on that service are Law & Order reruns and The Office reruns. And potentially like Murder, She Wrote reruns or all the other sort of beloved shows that are on there. Those both both those categories, the buzzy new stuff and the, and the deep catalog and the library guys, stuff. Yeah. Those used to be in Netflix too. And mm-hmm. now I, I think your point about the reality show stuff is right. I mean, using my own small sample size house as an example, they cannot make enough nailed episodes for my children. Like they should just be making them. They should just be running them round the clock and paying Nicole Byer the same th- amount they paid Shonda Rhimes to eat all that cake. But uh, Nicole, the cake, I don't, Shonda can have whatever cake she wants because she deserves it. So that strategy has really worked for them in the reality space. I don't know if they've cracked the code of how to create their own original Frasier or whatever to, to generate 200 episodes of. Yeah. I wonder if there's somebody at Netflix listening to this right now being like, you idiot, we do have that. It's this, you just aren't, you know, you're not looking at it right. Like when you look at the top 10, 
it's hard to divine lessons from the top 10 of the Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's two shows with the word killed in it, two true, true crime documentaries with the word killed in it, a David Allen Greer sitcom, a Melissa McCarthy movie that I didn't know came out, yep. a new sci-fi movie with Anthony Mackie and Jamie Dornan called Synchronic, which I actually thought was kind of interesting. Um, the Serpent, a couple of kids shows, you know, Beauty and the Baker. Uh, it, it's like, it's like, it's kind of like, it has no identity. It is like kind of like scrolling through your cable guide in a way, but yeah, with a much think, easier access. I think we've said before that I think the other services are fighting to be the leader in TV and Netflix just wants to be your TV. Mm-hmm. And their head start is allowing them to do that. But it's interesting to see what will happen to that previous generation of kind of prestige things. Cindy Holland, who is the executive who, who uh, led the charge for a lot of those, is no longer with the company. And so we have Mindhunter maybe coming back. We just found out surprise drop. I know Chris Kai and I were talking about surprise sneaker drops because we're all just big, big uh, sneakerheads. We're just grail hunters. That's what we are. Um, But Master of None coming back Mm -hmm. for season Mm -hmm. three in May. A lot of people surprised about that. Not much information given, but those are- To be fair, you know what? There was not a lot of information about Mindhunter coming back. You know, like there is like a strange like thing that does happen on Netflix where a show just comes. Now, obviously, much different circumstances. Well, also one has actually been filmed, apparently. Like, I feel like we have confirmation that that exists. Master of None season three. Well, no, I mean, Mindhunter season season two. When Mindhunter season two came out, it was like there was a billboard on La Brea. And then it was like on (laughs) and there was like a it was like a 45 second trailer, a billboard on La Brea. And it was on Netflix. Did you paint that billboard? <laughs> it was on my house. Yeah. That, hey, um, I want to. This is an interesting conversation that we can keep having, obviously. But uh, before we get to Top Chef, I just wanted to mention that um, I don't know if you saw, but there it was an announcement that they are going to be making on Hulu. Uh, Hillary Duff is going to be starring in How I Met Your Father, which is obviously a spinoff of a show that I loved called How I Met Your Mother, uh, which now almost seems like uh, like a classic kind of ancient TV history, you know, but is, is a, I think a highly influential, very beloved sitcom that ran for uh, nine seasons, I think on CBS starring Jason Siegel and Josh Radner and Kobe Smulders and Allison Hannigan, and Neil Patrick Harris and everything. Um, the reason why I bring this up, aside from the fact that I thought it was interesting that this is on Hulu and that, you know, Hillary Duff is in it and release the Gerwig cut, you cowards. This is exactly what I'm saying. So this, thus ends one of the great what ifs in modern Hollywood, I think, <laughs> which is in 2014, I believe they filmed the pilot. Greta Gerwig was to star and co write in How I Met Your Dad, which was coming right off of the heels of the, was to come right off the heels of the How I Met Your Mother finale which rivals Lost in its controversy among people who watched it, people who loved it. Um, it was a very, very sort of like hotly debated finale. But uh, they had announced that they were going to make How I Met Your Dad, that Gerwig was going to be the central character, and she was going to It gonna was going to also... be How I Met Your Father too, right? Or was that No, it was How dad. I Met Your Dad. Oh. It was Dad. Because that was Dad, and this is Father, I think. Very casual, so she, I see. Yeah, <laughs> very cash. And Gerwig was going to star, and she was going to co-write it, coming off of Francis Ha. So this was like... Greta Gerwig is going to go make a sitcom for CBS. This is going to this is going to be fascinating, and I think um, Andrews Holm from Workaholics was going to be in it, and Andrew Santino. I can't remember Nick D'Agosto who was, was going to be in it, but um, mm-hmm. you know it never happened. They would they shot a pilot, they decided not to go ahead with it, and I thought that was going to be that. And now here we are, uh, what seven years later? Oh my god! And 
Hilary Duff is going to star in a different version of this. This comes from uh, two writers who work, I think they're the showrunners of This Is Us and uh, Love, Victor. And so they're doing the show with Carter Bays and Craig Thomas, who did the original How I Met Your Mother. They're going to be sort of executive producing. Pretty interesting. I'll definitely give it a chance. I like the fact that it's on Hulu. It you know allows it to maybe be in that um, high fidelity zone of a little bit edgier. It's interesting uh, and, that- And a, a little bit canceled. Maybe, but uh, I mean, Hillary Duff was supposed to, she was in talks or was going to do a Lizzie McGuire uh, yeah. update for Disney. And then they wound up not going ahead with that because she wanted it to be a little bit more adult themed. It was going to be like, what would it really be like for this person to be this age? It was called Elizabeth McGuire. Oh, really? You, Are you, no. I thought you were making an Elizabeth Olsen joke. And um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'll definitely check it out. I, I think it's, uh, it's cool how nothing ever really dies, though. Nothing ever really dies, for sure. I think the most interesting part about this for me, not as a uh, fan of the, I'm not, I, not, I wasn't not a fan, I just didn't watch the original, was the key change here doesn't seem to be Gerwig for Duff. And by no. the way, as you said, one of the most interesting what ifs, because then that didn't so, go. Yeah, does Ladybird happen? She does Ladybird instead of being locked into a seven-year sitcom deal. Um, that was also the period when she and Noah Baumbach were writing a Barbie movie, which we, mm-hmm. I think we talked covered extensively on the podcast. So what a, that was an interesting period. But anyway, the interesting thing to me is that obviously with, nothing with ever Margot really dies. With Robbie, I think, right? For her company anyway, yeah. yeah. And nothing ever really dies. Um, all IP is coming back again. Everything's getting rebooted. One of the more interesting examples of whether the, uh, of generational shift, because How I Met Your Dad was created by, along with Greta Gerwig's input, I guess, by those two dudes who made the original. Yes. They either decided or were convinced that it was time to cede the torch for a young coming of age, young people type show to younger people. Yes. And the, and, and the, the, the duo that we're talking about who took over from them, who, who do This Is Us, are pretty young. They're like in their early 30s, despite their enormous success. Probably comparable age to what the How I Met Your Mother dudes were when they started. So I, I, that's kind of interesting to me. I liked How I Met Your Mother because it came out at a time when I was a young person living in New York. And that was enjoyable, even if it was like somewhat of a, you know, I think it was probably shot in Burbank. But like, I still I still thought it was pretty fun to watch people go to bars every night. I don't think that I could make that show about young people now, nor nor I guess could Thomas and Bayes. So I think that's smart that they're passing the torch to, to, to younger folks. Yeah, because... Chris, I promise you, I don't know. Is it was it Carter and Thomas and Bayes? I keep wanting to say English muffins. What what are their names? I uh, it's I, I I always get it confused, but I believe it's Carter Bayes and Craig Thomas. Okay, well, Carter and Thomas, I, I don't know them. They probably live in a fancier zip code than I do, but I bet that they and I would have and you and I they, if they saw. <laughs> I love that if, you just did. I don't know that man. That that I don't know that man. <laughs> but if they ever clicked on the trending topic about the YouTuber who broke his face because of the other YouTuber like I did today, uh-huh. I still, I didn't understand every fourth word in this story. I don't, I don't understand know what you're anything. talking about. There's some YouTube scandal with people who are very rich and successful and they're filming jackass pranks, oh, but they're also running, that. but they're also like, but you know, guess what? I, I guess YouTubers don't have morals and then like their buddies <laughs> break their skulls. And then they're like, I'm very sorry for the damage I caused my friend's skull. P.S. I stole the name of my successful photo sharing app from a guy I secretly filmed when he was pitching it to me, but then stole it. And then Serena Williams' husband is like, 
I, I am I am withdrawing my support from this guy who filmed his friends having day? a threesome. You're, what? <laughs> the world is word salad. It's just Mad Libs out there on the TL. Um, let's start talking about Top Chef, man. Oh, uh, thank you. I feel safer in the kitchen. Let's get, let's, let me get you into your safe space. Uh, so Top Chef, we are on episode four, I believe, yeah. right? And I wanted to start with this this conversation. Okay. starter this thought starter hmm. it's really fascinating to me how not only has like this show changed over the last couple of seasons and especially in the last two but with la and now this and clearly it's going to be a different sh- season because of covid and everything that the restaurant business and chefs have been going through but it's also interesting to me to see how the um the language of the show has changed and the verbiage of the show has changed mm-hmm. uh and i wanted to ask you this to start with okay. does cook your food do you know what that means anymore I'm here to cook my food. You've got to cook your food. Because this is a thing that I think was repeated a lot on this episode. Yes. It has been repeated a lot throughout this season. People who are like, I'm technically proficient, but I don't know how to cook my food. Or I, I don't know what my food really is. Like, is this an, a recent phenomenon? Is this a recent saying? And do you feel like it's been repeated so much that we're starting to lose a little bit of an idea of what it means? It's a great question. I think traditionally the way the, the restaurant industry worked especially with the way the brigade system was employed in Western kitchens. The goal was to execute the executive chef's vision Uh to the best of your ability. And that was basically, what that basically meant was, and you know, we can read about this in any number of books, including our pal David Chang's memoir from last year, Eat a Peach, like cut the Brunoise carrots exactly the same way so Uh that everyone in the brigade knows exactly how to do it. And you know exactly how to make a proper stock and reduce the sauce. And so you know what you, – you're all speaking the same language in pursuit of a dish that is repeatable and under, easily understandable in the grand lexicon of essentially French-influenced fine dining. And what the show – as our culture has changed and the show has changed, what they're saying is – and, and you, can, it, to, you can basically understand what I'm saying through the two-episode dramatic arc of our man Chris from, from New England – they don't want to see something that is a perfectly executed French dish. They want you to be able to execute fundamentals in the kitchen, like don't serve chicken sashimi, which we'll get to. But um, by the way, there are many places in Japan that serve chicken sashimi, and apparently it's incredible. So maybe someone could pull that off on the show one day. I, but, the, I have several comments about that. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get there. But what they're saying, what they're saying is, what makes you want to be a chef, and what kind of chef are you? And mm-hmm. As the show has changed, not just in terms of its representation and in terms of its culture, but also in terms of who comes on it. Because it used to just be sous chefs who yep. are basically like cooking in his master's voice. You know, and they I mean? have like half and a dozen James Beard nominees. In who who theoretically yeah. have restaurants and business plans that are easily understandable to diners and to investors. Like, well, this is what this chef does. This is, and you know, all the chefs who are on the judging panel this year, whether you like them or dislike them or rate them highly or, or some more than others, all of them have a distinct point of view. And what I thought was interesting, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up as the opening question because I think that the, the one way to characterize the transition of the show over the last few years has been that it's become more heart than head. And this was an absolutely brilliantly designed challenge to highlight what the it means. The fruit challenge. The fruit challenge to... Yeah highlight what it means to be a chef that leads with heart instead of head. The winners were able to understand what that means uh, and execute 
um, it was much more, it, it wasn't about overthinking it and being like, how can I take the bounty of these trees and harvest and fold them into the mother sauces of France? Mm-hmm. It was what makes me personally excited and what am I going to do with it? You know? Yeah. I mean, I think that I want to go through the episode the way we usually do, which is with the quick fire and then with the elimination challenge. But I do think that Chris and Kiki's sort of storyline, this episode, were very exemplary of what I'm talking about. I think both of those contestants said at various points over the course of the season, multiple times even, I need to learn, I need to cook my food. I need to like get out of my own head. I need to cook with my heart, essentially. You know what I mean? And uh, for Chris, who was really struggling in the opening episode, second episode as well, I think, you know, he basically slingshot to the sort of top of the table over the course of this third, fourth episode by winning a very, um, I thought, you know, not silly, but like another kind of spawn con quick fire with yep. the Campbell soup stuff. And then doing an, an, an nearly won the elimination challenge at the, the fruit loop. So he obviously is somebody who has in a very short amount of time realized like I have the technical know-how and the skill set to be a good chef. What I need to do is cook the food that I, that clearly comes from a place of, of love and passion. Kiki, on the other hand, I think is in touch with the idea, that idea mm-hmm. already. And I, I think I want, I want to ask you a lot about the edit that she got, mm-hmm. but I think she is somebody who is not comfortable in either of the, arenas that top chef puts you in as tom said in this episode he was like the only time you're ever going to get to cook what you want the way you want it is in the finale you got to get there to do that kiki didn't seem very happy about or not comfortable in the quick fire pressure cooker situation and then two times with the foo-foo last episode and then with the chicken this episode when she had time to think about what she wanted to cook and kind of plan it out it came back to bite her and that chicken was nearly alive enough to bite her it literally you know so so it's it's an interesting kind of case study of you know maybe if i i may maybe i'm backseat backseat driving here if kiki had been like a little less like con- conscientious about like cooking her food and was just like i'm just gonna like get in the middle here you know what i mean i'm just gonna like cook mm-hmm. a, a dish that i know i can execute and while it may not sing it will not hit false notes. Perhaps she would have been safe this episode because there were obviously some other failures. It was one of the more complicated eliminations I've seen in a while because you had three people who really fucked up. Yep, absolutely. I think that what you're speaking to, and maybe we'll trace her, her journey through the episode because it was one of the more excruciating... Yeah, tough episode uh, to watch in a lot of ways. ...downfalls I've seen in a while uh, is that the the casting has changed so significantly on the show if i think if you go back on previous seasons there are a there's a smattering of unicorns people who are like melissa mm-hmm. or blaze who are just like preternaturally good at this kind of competition and also yeah. brilliant visionaries and also really good on tv i mean how many people are like that and then there were also a bunch of spots that they seemed to reserve for people who could cook but we're good on TV, the Fabios of the world from those middle seasons. And then there were kind of a bunch of other, there's, there was some chum, to be frank, you know. And what's I, and the reason I was thinking about that was because the finale here, the, the, not the finale, the final judgment was excruciating because we're four episodes in and the three chefs up for elimination were 
all legitimate fan favorites. I mean, pretty much everyone, with the exception of Portland Gabe, who's not that bad, uh, are all really good hangs. And I think when they've changed their criterion for who they bring on the show, I feel like one of the things they may have changed is they don't seem to be looking for sharks anymore. And I think sharks Mm -hmm. are going out of business in the business anyway, and that's probably a good thing. Sure. But what that could result in is someone like Kiki, who seems like an outstanding human being and who seems like a wonderful cook. And I mean, think about how difficult it is to make the kind of personal and emotional connection she seems to have made with 15 strangers in the equivalent of five days or a week. But at least as evidenced by the first, by, by her run on, you know, on the big show, maybe she'll do better on Last Chance Kitchen. I haven't checked it out yet. She doesn't seem to have the the killer instinct or the, or, or the whatever it is that allows... It's um, it's like they call it in like uh, in European football or in English football they call it like nous. It's like kind of knowing where you are in the game, and you know if you're up to one, don't yep. go get a third goal. Shut down the shop and make sure nobody scores a, a second against you. And I that, thought that's I why thought, everyone loves soccer. By the way, it's no, it's, it's, that, it's that killer instinct you, you to gotta, do nothing you gotta, you gotta love for that, sixty the, minutes. The theater of not giving up a goal. <laughs> yeah. I thought I just I just, I was pulling for her, and I was pulling, yeah. and I was like, kind of like, you know that that. So so, where do you want to do this? Because I I do want to talk about her her elimination well, cook. So you want to start with the the quick fire, and then we can get to the elimination. Yeah, and there's actually maybe a way to segue from from the kind of from what I was trying to articulate about the personalities of the people on the show. Um. I thought that the the Campbell soup thing. I mean, it it was SpawnCon, but it, it it's better it, that, than it's like it's fine. I'm not trying to act like I'm in. No, bad but it is. But it's better it, yeah. than like Trolls World Tour SpawnCon because sure. people do cook with soup, and I thought it was kind of an interesting challenge, and also very. I, it was I a like great it. way. No free ads. I, I I eat that soup. It's cool. It's it's not a big deal. Oh, <laughs> like, for yeah. sure. But what I mean is, it it is it is actually that was not that that wasn't one of the ones where they're trying to squeeze something in, and the chefs are like, I always use this mm-hmm. checks label, whatever it is. Um, it was really an interesting way to gain more insight into who the chefs are and what their personalities are. If I was on Top Chef, choice. if I was on Top Chef, yeah. I would like really like have totally like out there testimonials about like every time we had like a spawn quick fire, I'd just be like, when I die, bury me into lenty layers. Like this is my favorite food. <laughs> if I have a last meal in prison, <laughs> I want to eat Campbell's cream of mushroom soup. I mean, you would be a Bravo favorite. I don't know if <laughs> you'd be right. a fan favorite. Um, I think that what was interesting to me in, over the course of the episode was that there are ways to lose and still lose like a Top Chef winner. And that was Shota in the quick fire mm-hmm. because there was no hesitation. He immediately had a pretty brilliant idea. He based it on something that he loves that his mother cooked for him in, in, in Chowan Mushi, the Japanese egg custard. It's not super challenging to do. It's just a little bit tricky to execute in you know limited amounts of time. The, it was it was a flawless idea that was absolutely going to be on the winner's circle, except execution. Steamer basket didn't seal or whatever. He didn't get the temperature right, and he didn't win. But at no point was there any hesitation, and at no point did you get the sense that if he was doing this with an extra five minutes, he wouldn't have accomplished it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You contrast that, and I know I'm jumping from quick fire to um, elimination, but what Avishar did with the fruit risotto that wasn't Ohio really yeah. didn't really have fruit. That was how to lose like a loser on Top Chef. And I say that with love and respect because he did pretty well the previous week. And 
I, you know, I still think he, his dish was probably better than Nelson's and definitely better than the aforementioned. Chicken I feel sashimi, like if Avishar, if Avishar gets eliminated, like he will be the ultimate wingman. Like I would love to have that dude as yeah. my second chef because he will bring something to the dish that you wouldn't have thought of. But I bet we'll do like a yeoman's job cooking with you. But you can see people's compasses really well early on. And mm-hmm. immediately he was like, I'm so excited and took a step in completely the wrong direction. You know what I mean? He was like, I, I I love being out here in this grass and then turned toward where all the rakes were lying in the grass and stepped on three of them. Yeah. Completely self-owned. So I thought that was interesting in terms of just where people's heads are at and also where their instincts are at. Like, yeah, Shota had an off week, but he still... So that, I did want to ask you... so Sarah, and they're still the ones to beat. I wanted to ask you uh, one Shota question, which was he steps up and, you know, his custard has come apart, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, you, you know the dish better than I do. And um, Padma's like... I think she's like, did you basically mean for this to be soft? Like, what, she you asked like it him to be like, this loose, yeah, this loose, and that he lies, way. not lies. Like, he's like, this is morally bogus or whatever. But like, he he decides to basically be like, I cooked what I meant to cook, rather than, eh, you know, it's a quick fire, like it didn't come yeah. together. What's the better option? Uh, I think they always not like know. in an ethicist way, but they always know. I think they always know. I, 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 so I then don't why not tell the a- truth? I, I mean, I guess on some level, he thought maybe he could trick him, mm. you know, or maybe we also don't know how the edit, maybe he smiled, maybe he winked. I don't know. Um, it, it could go either way. I mean, I, I think probably, I mean, look, you're the, you're the big stonks guy, right? Like, uh, like aren't that you, you, you know how the, you can see the big picture here and you can yeah, run you the odds the in your head. Right. If you say, this is not how I like to prepare my Campbell soup inspired chow and mushi, you have zero chance at $10,000. If you say, this is how I intended it to be then you put it on them to be like maybe my palate's not sophisticated there's enough. there's a five percent chance right yeah well, you know right right okay uh the only other quick fire note i had other than uh obviously chris immediately like kind of just like seems to be a different chef after making that panzanella mm. with the grilled cheese tomato uh riff um was that obviously what like kiki's the the, the sort of getting her judgment in the quick fire where she was one of the dishes singled out as people didn't like mm-hmm fucked her up for the elimination. And, um, you know, there was no real in-between moment in the show this week. It's basically like they get to the end of the quick fire mm-hmm. and the next scene is they're in their cars going out to the Mount Hood Valley to go to this fruit challenge. And she's just like, I'm kind of scarred up from that. You know, like she's she, she made her quick fire. She did not seem to be like in the best headspace going into the elimination. Um, and it I, in some ways, like that continuity made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I agree. I think there's there's an analogy to be made here with um, small aircraft piloting, something I know nothing about, except yeah. Yeah. there are pilots who can fly small Cessnas because they can look out the window and see where the ground is. And then there are pilots, you know, you get it, you have to do enough hours to be able to like instrument only flying Yeah, where there's cloud cover or darkness and you can know where you are just by looking at your compasses and your other stuff that's in front of you. Which and, one is, of those is Harrison Ford? Well, I think it depends on the... <laughs> time of day. Um, But that's kind of what separates Top Chef winners from everybody else. They they can always trust their instruments to lead them in the right direction. That's kind of what I'm saying about Shota as well. Whereas Kiki was so spun around by her experience in the previous episode, you know, faltering when paying culinary tribute to her family and her heritage, coming into this episode being like, I want collard greens. Oh, they don't have that? Oh, no. I guess I'll use this Swiss chard. Oh, it's a disaster. 
leads to the moment in the elimination challenge when she was like, I have a vision and I'm sticking to it. And Tom's like, are you sure about that? And she's like, I have to, this, finally, I have the ability to do the thing I have in my head. So I'm going to do it, even though you always listen to Tom. Yeah, so that that was a, a real moment. I mean, if yeah. Tom is giving you advice at a hat store, don't listen to him. If Tom is giving you advice in the field about cooking, listen to him. That's my only. So other his his, his advice to Kiki. So they get out to Mount Hood. They're going to do um or the Hood River Hood Valley. Is it Mount Hood in the shadow of Mount Hood? I don't know. That's right. Yeah. So you're this, the Portland this, guy. This whole I know. I, 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 it is the I am the Portland guy. Come on. Um, it's the Hood River Valley. My bad. Not Mount Hood. Or the maybe it is, but Hood River Valley. They get out there, um, and the, the the challenge is to make a savory dish with fruit picked from the trees in mm. this gorgeous orchard where they're looking at apples that I've never even seen before. This marbling on the inside, Spartan apples. I don't even know if I've ever had that. They got these gorgeous plums that make, you know, <laughs> Ashley. What's his face? <laughs> Ashley Schaefer. <laughs> Ashley Schaefer from Eastbound and Down. Just be like feeling in my plums. Uh, just absolutely amazing fruits. The twist is that they have no vegetables. So um, for somebody who's obviously a much more basic amateur chef, I think a lot of people understand this, Andy, but in, in case they don't, what, what's, what happens when you subtract the vegetables from this? I think the key thing is it's not just that you can't have like a fava bean puree on your plate next to your pork chop with plums or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, or a side salad. The way it, the place it really hit them was in the sauce making, which played a major role for the successes and the failures in the episode. Yeah. It's not just that- Gabe is like obviously a very good sauce maker, so. But it's not just that I, and unless I misread something or or misunderstood it, it's not just that they didn't have vegetables, like, you know, uh, the, what, you know, the, like greens, they didn't have alliums. So they didn't seem to have any onions or garlic or ginger, aromatics, Carrots, celery, you know, no mirepoix can be made, no ruse. So you can't do any of the things that are basically the building blocks of flavor for the sauces. Right. And that put them at a, right. at a Most very, very dishes start with throwing a bunch of garlic onion, garlic onions and stuff in a pan, and then you start building flavor from there. And they couldn't do any of that. Right. And what was I mean, the thing that separated the winners from the losers is the winners were like, cool, this seems fun. And you end up doing things like, you know, pickled grapes or slow smoking plums as the, basically as the protein of the dish or putting the protein in the sauce as Gabe from Texas did. Really brilliant, clever, exciting cooking that also one of the things that made the show so good, the episode so good was that the, the judges were elated, right? They were like, I've never had things like they this. They seem this to so be pretty, pretty enthused about the level of food that they're getting. I thought that the winner's circle was really interesting this, this episode, obviously, Gabe from Texas won, Gabe from Portland, and Chris were in the final three. Um, Gabe from Portland, to kind of go back to the theme of what we're talking about here, cooking his food seems to be, in a way, incredible attention to detail and precision. And maybe, you know, I don't know how far he'll go in this show this season, but it was it was fascinating to watch this guy just be like, I'm going to take a really simple base, which is the oyster, and I'm going to den- then spend the entire three hours putting together like the most amazing, essentially like garnishes and additions Min- to these he oysters. He made mignonette sauce three ways yeah, with three right. different and fruits. Obviously, like I didn't think that they were, I thought they were just like, this was fucking amazing that like the, the level of attention to detail was incredible. I thought the reaction to the taste and the food was like, this is really good. For Gabe, they were obviously elated. For Chris, I thought they were quite into the scallops. I will note that uh, 
Sarah got the first bit of chin music about the yogurts and like maybe the sort of not limitations of her repertoire, but like she has now put yogurt in I think like three out of five things that she's made. And I mm-hmm. noticed that I can't remember who was like, oh yeah, yogurt again, huh? But she, um, she brought it up. I mean, she was like, yes, I put yogurt in it. And they were all. Yeah. But I think Gail was like, yeah. Um, and then, uh, yeah, let's talk about the elimination. So well, well, I think that, before we, we move completely there, just in terms of the winner's circle, like the two Gabes were both really interesting and contrasting examples of putting your arms, raising your arms in the air when the roller coaster is going over. Mm-hmm. You know, like they both completely went for it with the challenge in a way that Shota was unable to because they were both willing to understand that they didn't need to compose a traditional entree plate. Everyone else seemed hamstrung by that, you know, whether it was Avishar being like, well, it shouldn't Shota be too made, fruity. Like, I'm going to put salmon, right? bacon in there. He made a cold smoked salmon that apparently was A, not very good, and B, detracted from the good stuff on the plate, which was the fruit. Right. Uh, Gabe from Texas was, did, you know, this radical stuff with, with plums. Um, and it seems like that was like incredibly hard to maintain the right temperature on those plums so that you didn't basically nuke them, right? Yeah. I mean, if you put any kind of fruit in the oven or grill, it's just going to collapse uh, under the heat. But he managed to to control that, and then um, Portland Gabe, like that was pretty ballsy to just yeah. be like, I'm going to serve you three oysters, and the thing that's going to get me not even into the winner's circle, but not eliminated, is essentially one bite. That he's really making the degree of difficulty so high for himself because he's not only saying I'm going to make a perfect companion sauce, but you're only going to get to have one taste of it, so it better just be a grand slam. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. So. You mentioned Tom coming out into the field and giving people advice, and obviously he had similar reactions to what Kiki and Avishar were doing. When Avishar was making a risotto, Tom didn't seem to find the Ohio thing funny uh, and also seemed to just sort of be like eyeballing his stuff and just being like, good luck. And then Kiki was like, I'm going to fry these. And I guess like Tom basically was saying, like your your fryer is not going to be powerful enough to do what you think you're going to do. Just grill them. And she didn't. And she had a moment of like, should I grill them? Should I grill them? And for her, cooking her food was following her gut and saying, I want these to be fried. I'm going to fry them. So she had these chicken. She wanted to do fried chicken. Um, And Nelson, I think, was like separate. Like, I think Nelson just like kind of hit his head against it. Like, he was like, this is not the kind of food I like to make. And Mm -hmm. this is not the kind of food I'm familiar with making. They basically... To me, like what Kiki did by serving 10 people, mm-hmm. not just one bad chicken, but like 10 pieces of poorly made chicken is probably a cardinal sin and you go home on that. Yep. But they did edit it as if it was a debate, you know, and that as if like Avishar it, it, fundamentally misunderstood the challenge, fucked up his rice, did this wrong, all this. And that Nelson almost like there was a moment there where I think... um Carrie was saying, well, if it wasn't for the raw chicken, Kiki's dish was pretty good. We should jump in here and be like, Carrie was a little too on front street with being okay with the raw chicken. The first person we see digging in was Carrie. And I was like, oh, so I guess this was another uh, deceptive edit that maybe Kiki got the timing right, even though they shot it like a horror movie when she just had extra time despite the temperature. I felt like that chicken looked very pale coming out of the fryer. Yeah, and so Carrie's like, hmm, this is pretty good. And then she looked up and everyone is just staring down in horror. And yeah. so I think she was kind of covering up for her own 
first bite, you know, and also just maybe, maybe take me a little Cipro just in case. Like you never, you never know. <laughs> she um, had to drink like a bottle of Mezcal to like eliminate all the bacteria. Just, just got to burn everything through in yeah. kind of beautiful healing way. No, do you've point, gotten me so into drinking mezcal at night now that like great. I actually think of it as medicinal. So like if I ever have yes. any like indigestion from eating like three tacos, I'm just like I'm just gonna have a you know a sifter of mezcal to just kind of like burn just it through, drop some some acid in there. Yeah, Chris, you ever read you ever read Malcolm Lowry's Under the Volcano? You ever read that I did, book? Uh, I missed that one. Oh well, the main character has a great time with mezcal. It's I mean. <laughs> I, I'm not going to prejudice you by saying it's one of the most horrific <laughs> downward spirals of alcoholism I've ever read. I just want to say that mezcal plays a very special role in this middle-aged man's life. Okay. Um, but to your point, there was never any question who was going home. I mean, it's just one of those things. You just, that was it. There, was, there wasn't they, really a decision. They did, they, they did, they did t- their good little TV. drama. Okay. So Kiki gets sent home. And I think we, we started out on this general conversation about you know cook, what cooking your food means. I want to end on this one. Mm-hmm. Four episodes in, so not quite halfway through the season, but we enough to get a sense of what they're doing this season. How do you feel about this sort of new judging format where there is now like mm-hmm. a much more, I think, judging by committee uh, setup and and the like, honestly, hosted by committee in some ways. Mm-hmm. And we've talked extensively before. Uh, we we You can make some logical conclusions that um, they made an effort to diversify their judges table and to diversify the voices of people evaluating the food. And also Tom Colicchio was probably busy trying to save the restaurant industry while also shooting top chef. So he's making appearances, but clearly is not the, like the voice of the kind of, of the food here on the season. Mm-hmm. Um, but how are you feeling about like the lack of like a central kind of Politburo for the, for the judging? I felt much better about it this episode than I had in the previous episodes. And I think the reason for that was this episode highlighted the advantages of having a recurring judging panel. And the advantage is the judges are tracking the week-to-week developments of the chefs so that they can all say, this is the same Chris as last week. Mm -hmm. What clicked? Rather what than changed. like Nancy Silverton once is just like, I don't know anything about this like, person, but they killed it. Yeah, or this person doesn't know what they're doing when it's not relevant to the narrative. And you could obviously say as a counter argument that, well, that's what Gail, Padma, and Tom are there for. But I thought it was kind of interesting. And you begin to see some potential uh, threads that are similar to one of my favorite seasons when Emeril was basically just like mentoring the chefs yeah. at a certain point. Yeah. Um, that was always an element that I felt like was underplayed on the show. Like they could have, they could actually bring in people to be mentors. I, I think I wrote a column where I was like, Roy Choi should come back and give everyone tough love for half a season. Um, that kind of investment in them and also feeling, you know, some element of, of commonality and connection because they went through it too, makes for good TV. It makes for good TV. I think that there is definitely uh, a lack of the the chef who comes in and that chef is like makes the best I don't know uh, turnovers in America and then they're like make me a turnover <laughs> it's like oh my god yeah. I'm making a turnover and everybody's for just like turnover. oh my god yeah right like right. I kind of miss that energy of like the expert who's just like this is this is not correct this is what you did wrong and like you know everyone jumping and also all the kind of ooing and eyeing when someone really interesting or exciting comes in and although I do think that's coming because we saw at least like Massimo Batura is going to show up on Zoom I don't know if that's going to be as good as him tasting your food but he's there so so far I'm I'm 
into it. And I think that they probably have made the right decision to lean into the uniqueness of this year rather than try to cover it. Try and just be like, it's Tom Gale and Padma and one other. So you're, you're okay with the five to seven or eight sort of person rotation of judges and hosts rather than every episode, the two things are hosted more or less by Padma and Tom with a third. I do think that there is clear separation between um, the Melissa, like Melissa Blaze and, and I think coming up behind them, uh, Kwame and Gregory, they're good TV. You know what I mean? Like they, and, and, and give good, interesting feedback that everyone respects and listens to. It's really to. funny because Blaze is in the bullpen throwing like a hundred and they're <laughs> well, just like, that was just, his spot. Yeah, right. Blaze <laughs> was essentially the fourth judge for a year or two and then now he's got to share time with Amar and Dale who are just like, they're just, they're just there for the free pants. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like Dale, talk about sneakerheads. Like Dale was just representing on the show. I know, I know. That's what seemed fine to me. But like that, some of these are, some of these people, like Melissa and I'm not just saying this because she came on our podcast, but she's a total package. She's great on TV. And I don't know if anybody would have seen that in her first season. And big picture, even if they go back to the old format next year, this this whole season will have been an enormous success for the franchise because they are grooming the next generation of judging talent uh, should Tom ever decide to go emeritus. You know what I mean? Or just do Last Chance Kitchen. Or maybe he doesn't want to do Last Chance Kitchen. Melissa does it or whatever. Like yeah. they have this in-house talent pool now. And if this was a development year... Good for them. Okay, cool. Well, we can wrap it up there. We're going to get into our interview or your interview with Aya Cash and William Jackson Harper. You want to tell everybody about that a little bit? Yeah, let's just set this up. There's a new movie that is available for um, your streaming renting pleasure at home. It's going to be in select theaters as well uh, called We Broke Up. It is a very charming, very enjoyable uh, kind of anti-rom-com about a couple played by as, you know, your favorite TV boyfriend and favorite TV girlfriend. <laughs> Will Harper and uh, Aya Cash, they are 10 years in couple who break up in the movie's opening moments just as they're about to head out to her baby sister's wedding. Some humor, some heart, some great performances by those two. It's really fun when you get to see actors whom you love from TV worlds just getting a chance to sink their teeth into something a little bit bigger and play off each other in surprising ways. And it was good. You know, I got to say, the dynamic was interesting because Aya, this is her fourth time on the show. And I started off by being like, you know, Aya, one more time, you get you get a. And she like was like, "What jacket. podcast is this?" <laughs> she was like, "Where's Chris?" Um, Where's CR? That guy's hilarious. And uh, yeah, and Will was like, I'm, "How many more of these do we have to do today?" But um, they were great sports. It was great talking to them, and um, definitely check out the film if you you know if you have the inclination of the time this weekend. It's available in your homes, and let's just get into it, and we'll see everybody back here on Monday. Yeah, a little last housekeeping. I think that if you uh, have been looking for Oscar content, please look no further than the Big Picture feed where Sean and Amanda have been doing amazing work. This week, I did an Oscars draft with them yesterday, but they've got shows all week, plus they'll be going live relatively soon after the Oscars on Sunday. I think Andy and I will probably share some thoughts on Monday. But, Chris, you know, we got a big show Monday. But we got a big show on Monday. We got Mayor of Easttown and we got the finale of Falcon and Winter Soldier. So we'll have a plenty to talk about. We are produced this week, as we are every week, by Kaya McMullen. Uh, let's get into your interview with Aya Cash and William Jackson Harper. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. 
To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, Restrictions all apply. See website for details. Okay, I'm left alone here now, though Kai is watching. She's got my back with Aya Cash and William Jackson Harper, stars of the new film, We Broke Up. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Aya, welcome back. Will, Bill, whatever I can call you, please accept my apologies for how we started before we started recording. I think it's going to go better now. No, 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 no. I, I, I reject your apology. Um, <laughs> And I, I will not yes and you. I will no but you. And uh, that's that's how this is going to roll for the next wow. however long. <laughs> my my dream of having this actually be a herald exercise is clearly <laughs> ruined now. I I knows I am trained in the arts of improv and, and sketch. That's how I usually run things. But okay, we'll move forward. Um, welcome to the podcast. You guys have been doing press all day with each other virtually. How's that going? Any tensions that I can exploit that have already been revealed during your day? Well, Will's been eating some really delicious looking paella and um, <laughs> between takes <laughs> and um, between takes, between press moments, between seven minute interviews. Yeah. Um, and I'm really fucking jealous is what's going on. 
Do you really have a full paella with like the socarrat, the crispy rice layer on the bottom? No, it, it's it, it actually it came from Sun Basket and it was an it we nuked it. It's it's really good. I like it, but um, <laughs> it's just a little bowl of paella. It's just really just rice and shrimp. It's not even. It's 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 just you know, it's what it is. But I enjoy. it. You just lost Sun Basket as a sponsor with that description. <laughs> I know. By the way, I should mention the watch brought to you by Sun Basket, <laughs> whose paella is. Out of this world. Um, where are you guys physically right now? In what cities am I speaking to you from? I'm in Atlanta. Um, my girlfriend's working on a project down here, so I'm just hanging out. I'm in the city of New York. Oh, I've heard of it. I, that's an up-and-coming city. That's great. Yeah, yeah apparently. Uh, the New York Times likes to do an article every four days about how New York is over, and then New York is coming back, and then, no, 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 New York is over, but New York is coming back. It's whiplash. How do you feel coming I, back? I feel like uh, watch um, Fran Leibowitz and uh, <laughs> make your decisions. I think that's fair. Guys, I, I, I'm very curious, and, I, and I'm not going to make this interview solely about the press experience, but I really was curious that of all the things that you've endured, uh, and obviously I'm being, people have endured much worse, but during COVID as actors, have you reached the point where you actually miss press junkets in person? Like, have we reached that point of COVID where so many things are different that the day of sitting in the same hotel suite eating things less good than paella is something that you miss now? You know, there, there is an aspect of it that I do kind of miss that is, um, I, I just, I, I really just miss being in the room with people. Uh, you know, it's like there's a vibe that you get and then like, it, it's like when you're, you know, when you're making jokes and things trail off, it's just like, you know, you, you don't have to have such clean audio, you know, you can sort of overlap and stuff like that and things feel more organic. And so there's, you know, yeah, the zoom stuff and the, you know, like doing everything digitally is like, um, you know, for me, I get a little more nervous actually than if I'm actually just in the room with another person, oddly, um, which I, I figured just because of my personality, it would be the reverse that being remote would be easier. But for some reason, I think just really getting a feel for somebody and being in the space with them is, is really comforting. You want to share your non-branded, culturally non-specific rice dish. That's yeah. all you want. That's all I, I, want. I get it. Yeah, I feel like it's a mixed bag. Like, I really love not having to go anywhere and, like, the time commitment and the energy and sometimes, like, the effort of, like, I didn't get hair and makeup done today. I didn't, you know, I, it was, it's nice to just be at home and feel a little more relaxed and be able to run and go get a snack or go, you know, uh, say hi to my dog in between things. Um, but there is something I'll tell you what I miss is auditioning in person. The, the self tape is some bullshit. I, I gotta be an audio engineer, an editor, a, uh, casting director, a reader, a, uh, cinematographer. It is a nightmare and, and I hate it so much, but the press stuff, I, I don't, I don't mind being at home so much. I, and I love seeing people's homes that like, as I hide my own. Yeah. Um, this is not on camera though, right? I mean, do these go out? If you pull the curtain down, it'll definitely go out. We're very curious <laughs> what's lurking behind your head at this moment. Nothing. I just, I've just decided to just, just crime, crime scene. Yes, exactly. Um, so I, turning to the movie, so we broke up, which I enjoyed very much. And uh, in the movie, you guys play a very long-term couple who, um, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything since the title does, but doesn't go great for them right from jump. Uh, but they've been together for 10 years. And 
I'm curious, particularly because both of you, I know a lot of the people listening to the podcast will know your work from You're the Worst and from The Good Place. And on shows like that, they got to watch you play a romantic relationship almost in real time where you met the other person, met you know on screen, and then over episodes or seasons, the relationship developed. This is a much different experience where you guys, probably from the very first day on set, had to have that level of comfort and intimacy to play a couple who have been together for 10 years. So I'm wondering what, what is that experience like? How, what sort of rehearsals did you guys have to do conversations you had, or did you just have to sort of jump into the pool, so to speak? We kind of jumped into the pool. You know, I, I think that, you know, we both have experience with long-term relationships and how complicated they get. And so there's a lot of stuff in this script that just makes sense. You know, you just play it as it lays and it, 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 it connects. Um, and so, you know, for me, there wasn't a ton of like elaborate backstory that needed to be crafted in order to understand what's going on in the scenes because it, it really is just there. And it's like your imagination just sort of takes you into a place that sort of really supports the story because it's so clearly written. And um, that's one of the things that I just loved about the script when, when Rosie showed it to me. It was just like, oh, man, this is I kind of know certain aspects of, of how this feels. And um, I, I'm really interested in seeing how how we can make it play. And if anyone else will feel something odd or, 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 or remember that feeling in some way uh, while watching it. Yeah, we didn't have a ton of time, but Will and I both come out of the New York theater scene and had known each other sort of peripherally for years. So we'd done some workshops together, um, some readings. I had obviously seen him on stage uh, a lot. Uh, I remember seeing him in Zoe Sands play at um, Lincoln Center and just being like, that's when I, I think, fully fell madly in love with Will Jackson Harper. I was like, oh, this is this is somebody incredibly special. So I had seen his work throughout the years and always thought he was great and then saw that performance and was just blown away. And then actually, I think we did a workshop right after that of a, a play at uh, Manhattan Theater Club. And um, I just, he's also he's got a great reputation. I mean, I do my research on people when I sign on for anything and Will is beloved by everyone who's ever encountered him. And now, now I pass that forward, <laughs> but that now I can say all the nice things about Will because he's so much fun to work with. I love how weird the acting career is where I, you can be in a theater watching someone do something, no doubt, serious and heavy and say, one day I'm going to uh, chicken fight that guy in a freezing swimming pool <laughs> on camera. Like that's, that's hashtag goals for this. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you mentioned, I, I was going to call him Jeff, but you called him Rosie. So this is the co-writer and director of the film. And in doing research, I, I, I discovered that he was an AD on The Good Place. And I wonder if that's how you first encountered him. And for people who don't know, ADs are the people who are around being incredibly helpful, doing a lot of work, but literally are always around, particularly the actors. And I'm just very curious, maybe I'm reading into what I'm imagining a backstory, but you get to know these people pretty well. And I'm wondering at what point that person says, hey, by the way, I've got an idea or I've got a little something. Yeah, he. well, you know, it's like we when we first met, um, he, you know, says, like, hey, I'm, I'm Jeff, everybody calls me Rosie. We actually have a lot of friends in common. I went to school with your buddy Kui, and I was just like, "Oh, wow, yeah, yeah." And so we 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 vibed like that um, instantly. 
And he's just a, a real, he's a nice dude. He's just a great dude. And then, yeah, he, he told me, like, I think this is like maybe like, maybe the second second year that I had been working with him. He was like, hey, I, I wrote this thing. Um, and I think we're actually going to, we're going to get it produced. Um, would you want to read it and see if it's something you're into? And I was just like, yeah, sure. And he just handed it to me and left it in my trailer. And I took it home, read it. And it was just like, oh, this is great. You know, and. You know, he's he, he really understands. Hey, he understands how to work with actors really, really well. He knows how to make you feel safe and confident and comfortable. And you know, he's also because I think he's an AD. He does sort of no, nothing ever feels too precious, too rushed, too. You know, it's like the the train stays on the tracks because you know he's not having to be corralled you know, in order to make sure that we get what we need. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great. I, I mean, it's, it, it, I, yeah, I, I, I was just so pleased that the dude that I met on the set of The Good Place, who I really liked, was the same dude that was directing this movie. And he was like, just the kindest, most generous, most fun person to work with. And I like we, you just referred to the fact that you like to do research on people you work with, with for good reason. Taking a part in a film like this from a first-time filmmaker, I mean, it is you, it is speaking about jumping in the deep end of the pool. I mean, you have to trust people on a certain level. I was wondering what your entry process was like into the project. Well, first of all, I've had some of the best experiences working with first-time filmmakers. I actually really love doing um, people's first films. I find that it's generally very collaborative. Um, people are uh, just there's a, a certain energy that happens on a first film. Um, and I really enjoy it. And I've made really close friendships with a lot of the filmmakers who I worked on their first film. Um, so I like that in general. Um, but I, this was the first film I was ever offered. It was like season two of you're the worst and an offer came in and I'd never gotten an offer for anything before, <laughs> except maybe like an episode of a procedural and I was so excited to ha not have to audition because I hate that. And uh, then I read the script. I was like, oh, it's great. It's it's smart. It's funny. It's like I really love the idea of ending at the uh, beginning at the end. And uh, I then had coffee with Rosie and he seemed lovely and wonderful. And then six years later, I heard back <laughs> that they had finally, you know, indie movies take forever to, to come together. It's pretty typical that it takes a long time. It's a lot of passion and uh, blood, sweat, and tears to get something made. And so he said, that, you know, I think we're, we have the money and uh, we're out to Will Jackson Harper. And I was like, well, there, it's a no brainer that like, let's, let's go do it. Uh, let's go to like really warm Malibu in February. I'll get out of New York. And mm -hmm. then, um, and it was 30 degrees and we had a great time. <laughs> See, this is why you're the four time on the watch podcast pro, because that was the perfect segue. Incredible un unspoken communication. So I had my first production experience not too long ago. And I finally learned why people say actors and crew people that it's like adult summer camp. It appears that you guys literally went to a summer camp to film this. Uh, is that accurate? Did that increase those feelings of we're all in this together? And uh, the third piece of it is what I alluded to, which was it looked like it was freezing. Uh, you guys sold it. But I, <laughs> may, may, but maybe it's because I remember hearing about uh, Wet Hot American Summer and they were like, we filmed in a camp and it was the wettest, coldest American summer in the history of American summers. And so then when you rewatch it, you're like, he doesn't look happy. I can see her breath. 
Okay, well, now it's your turn to be perfect because our cabins were the wet, hot American summer cabins. I nailed it. (laughs) So, yeah, we were on the same. It's a very fancy Malibu uh, resort, but then there's these cabins set up for filming. So those aren't actual cabins. And so we didn't stay over. It wasn't a total summer camp experience in that way. Um, But, yeah, we were were at the same Malibu resort that Wet Hot uh, shot some of their stuff at. How many days were you actually in production there? What, how how fast and furious was it? It was it was fifteen days, so Crazy. it was really really quick, um, you know. And but you know, also I I think because it's like our our crew was very small, um, you know, everything was like very you know intimate in a lot of ways, and so that that did feel kind of like a summer camp because you 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 know you know everybody. You know, you know, all the faces, there's no, you know, there's no like crew member that you never see. It's like you, you see everybody. And that's, that's a lot of fun. Cause it's just, I don't know. I, I like the feeling like we're all on the same team trying to make a thing and we are, we all know each other. Um, I mean, I know that that's like, that's a, that's something that is part of any set, but there's a lot of people that you just don't encounter. And mm-hmm. on, on this one, we all encountered each other. We all joked, we all you know, horsed around in between takes and it was, uh, it was great. It was, it was a very intimate, very fun set to be on. There are clearly a lot of perks to be an actor and, you know, in different levels of the profession, but I, I, it strikes me that there must be something that's very appealing to, to theater kids to just be like, just rip and run. Like, let's just make this, like, let's just get this done and get to work and, and have fun. I feel like that's a spirit that can infect a production and potentially was, Infects a really bad word for 2021. I'd like to. I'd like to take another run at that. But could uh, infuse like a, like an herbal tea. Uh, it seems like that's what happened here. Yeah. Also, I would say I am now um, all in on anyone from Groundlings because we had some uh, people from the Groundlings, and they are brilliantly funny and joyous people. I was like, well, this is a this is I, I vote Groundlings as well as the theater community for being just like super willing to jump in and like have a great attitude and, and run with something. They would say yes, and at the beginning of a podcast is what you're saying. Would. <laughs> yeah. Unlike. I'm not. Unlike I'm not na- <laughs> I wasn't. No, I, I mean, I'll let you know how this is going to go, you know? <laughs> Which I respect. <laughs> it's been bumpy, but I respect it. Um, what, what, one of my favorite things about the film was that it, you know, just as fans of both of your work, that it gets, it gives you a chance to play a lot of different things. You know, clearly within a very compressed time frame, you get to play romance, you get to play comedy, you get to play some some drama and real and real sadness, but you also get to play very drunk uh, and very drunk referees. I have to say that the there's an extended period, again, we don't want to give too much away about the movie, but there is a extended uh, sequence in which the wedding party and people here at, at the wedding that has brought these two broken up people together uh, engages in, it's almost like Calvin Ball, if you remember from the Calvin and Hobbes comics. I, I don't actually understand what the rules to any of the things you people are doing are, but there seem to be rules and they all end in drinking. And you two are sort of the the maestros of this. And this seemed, this is a very fun uh, sequence to watch. <laughs> it was very fun um, for us to watch as well. Uh, we keep bringing up Kobe Libby in uh, press because he had the funniest run on any it, it, I have ever seen 
uh, when in one of its Paul, Paul Bunyan day is the day. Right. Uh, and, uh, during Paul Bunyan day, there's like them building, um, something is one of the events and, uh, Kobe just goes off. Uh, and it, I really hope that there is tape that ends up like we could just do the extras as Kobe's runs at that. Like that would be, that would be completely satisfying. We could erase no, no other extras and you would be very happy. It's so good. It's, uh, it's, it's amazing. It's one of those things where you're watching someone go and you're afraid to take a breath because you're just like, I don't want to miss what comes out of his mouth next because it's just crazy. And he's just pulling all of these references from every corner of his brain, just like the, the, the speed and the access he has. I, I was just like my jaw was on on the floor uh, watching I that. I'm really glad you referenced that it was Paul Bunyan Day because it did. The movie did make me realize, and 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 well, this was probably the moment I related to your character the most is when someone says, "I don't even know who that is," and you're like, "He's the most famous uh, folk mythological character in American history as a giant blue ox." And then you said it with such certainty, which I share because that was just ingrained into me in like second grade. But then you live an adult life in the world, and you never question that you just are aware of a famous mountain man with a blue ox that otherwise has no bearing on our daily lives. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. U.S. history has been taught very strangely in America. <laughs> very poorly, as we've learned recently. That's a great point. <laughs> Perhaps the year study we did of Paul Bunyan and large oxen could have been better served elsewhere. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe. But yeah, it's it's you no, know, it is a weird thing where like you have those things that you just know, and some people, some people have not even. They never even heard of it, and it's like it's the oddest thing, you know. That I, I never thought for a second that anyone would like not know who Paul Bunyan was, you know. And I mean, it's like for me, it's like I, I watched a lot of cartoons with Paul Bunyan, and it, it's just like it's, it's he's everywhere, you know. And I mean, I guess I haven't thought about him in a lot of years, but it, it is just it's just part of it's part of my DNA at this point. Why were we all shown these cartoons? Like maybe we should take a pause. <laughs> like this is just a weird thing. But know. it's also one of those things, like things from your childhood that you don't like. I know who Paul Bunyan is, but I don't know who Paul Bunyan is. Like, it's one of those things that I know, both know and don't know. And like, I can somehow pull out show tunes from old movies that I don't ever remember seeing. Like, I'll we'll be watching something, my husband and I, and I'll start singing along word perfect to a song. And I have no clue. I was like, I don't know. I've never seen this. I don't know what this is, but it's just in me. And I feel that way about Paul Bunyan. I'm like, yeah, Blue Ox. No, that's it. Though. I, it is just, one is one of the things you Zoom auditioned for Bunyan, the gritty origin story of Paul Bunyan that FX is developing? I feel like that's inevitable, right? Bunyan, the Paul Bunyan. <laughs> oh, oh, you just have a song for it. Um, I, I realize I've, I've, I'm, we're almost out of the time that we have, but I, I did want to pivot to future projects because, you know, like, like I said at the beginning, I'm a big fan of both of your work. I'm excited about things that I see on your IMDb pages coming up. And, well, especially I saw that you uh, were an actor in Barry Jenkins' Underground Railroad, which is one of the most anticipated programs of the year. I was curious what, what you can say about that experience or what people can look forward to before they actually get to watch. Uh, man, it is. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 I feel really fortunate that I got to be a part of that. I, I feel like that, that story, um, like the book really deeply affected me. 
And I feel like the, the, the series is, is, is going to do the same for, you know, for a, another audience. Um, I really hope that people watch it and then ask questions about who they would have been in those scenarios. You know, it's, it's so easy to, you know, look at the past and be like, well, this is what I believe now. And that's who I would have been then. But to, to sort of really think like, okay, like what would be your analog in that time? You know, like who, who would you actually be? Are you the person that, you know, helps to bring down an institution like slavery or, are you the person that just sort of has opinions on it, but says and does nothing? And it's, you know, it's like, I've had a lot of those conversations with myself, even, you know, thinking about the piece and thinking about history in general, just like, who would I actually have been? I know what I think and I feel now, but what would I have done when faced with, um, you know, these sort of dilemmas? And, and so that's the thing that I'm, I'm hoping that, that people wrestle with uh, watching it. And I, I really just, I think it's, you know, I, I'm, I just feel so fortunate that I got to be a part of telling that story. It's so exciting. Was, th- was that experience entirely, did you work on that pre-COVID or was that during uh, this last year that you were actually on set for that? I actually finished it literally like three or four days before wow. everything shut down. Um, my, my work was finished on the on the project a few days before everything shut down. And I think they actually had to shut down for a while mm-hmm. and then go back once people sort of figure out how to, you know, make all, all of this work. And, um, and so, you know, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it's, it's really, I don't know. I, I, it was, it's, it's, it's strange. It's just like to, to kind of go from something that was so heavy, but, but rewarding, and to just kind of go straight into this very traumatic experience that I think a lot of us are having and, you know, being surrounded by so much death and heaviness, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's tough. It's a lot, but, um, you know, I, I just feel fortunate that I got to do it and I got to do it before there's a lot of other things sort of infiltrating the space, um, that sort of dictated how the piece had to be made. And I, when we last spoke, you were about to go, to work under these very strange conditions on the comedy show that you're filming or you, you were filming in North Carolina. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Or how has that experience been? How has it been working during this time? I mean, I feel very lucky that I got to work during this time. Um, it was very strange and sometimes scary. Uh, it's uh, I, every set is different. I'm learning. I just went on another set and there were different protocols for that. So it's trying to figure out how to be safe and, uh, respectful, but also, um, like making a comedy (laughs) and having lightness. The strangest thing is not seeing crews faces. That's the hardest part actually, because actors take their masks off. Whereas I never see the face of some of the crew and, that's just a very bizarre situation. You'll see someone like pull down their mask to take a bite of something. You're like, Whoa, I, I have no idea what you look like. I've made you have a mustache. I completely, I, they, there was some mustache things going around <laughs> and, and that made me sad. It feels like you're missing a part of someone. Um, so, uh, but, it, but also very lucky. And, and the show 
is uh, great. It's filled with an incredible cast of people that you've never seen before. And that's really exciting to me. Um, I feel like uh, Paul and Jenny uh, discovered the next generation of great comedians. And, um, you know, uh, I, I just want, I'm very excited for the world to see all these like crazy talented people who they've never seen before. And when do we, do you have a premiere date? Is it this fall? I don't know. <laughs> Sometime. Sometime between 2021 and 2022. Oh, that's how I make plans now. That's perfect. That's when I have everything scheduled. Perfect. We'll your, be your there. Your TV show, me. Dentist Appointments. Underground Railroad, I believe, is coming in May. So that we know. But it's a, it's a pleasure to see both of your faces maskless and safely distanced. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We Broke Up is a lot of fun. And it is uh, in theaters, some theaters, safely on April 16th. Uh, available to rent or buy on demand on April 23rd. We broke up. The great Aya Cash, the great Will Harper. Thank you so much for joining me on The Watch. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.